It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Imagine you're standing on a balcony, looking down at a ballroom dance. When you zoom in, you can see each dancer's steps, weaving them through the crowd. But when you zoom out, the whole dance floor paints a dazzling portrait of movement. What if instead of a dance, that portrait exposed big ideas about life? And instead of dance steps, you were zooming in on Talmudic debates that illuminate those ideas. I'm Alana Steinhain, Director of Faculty and Senior Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Beginning Monday, November 15th, I'll be teaching a four-part series exploring how rabbinic tradition navigated life's uncertainties. There are so many aspects of life that we aren't so sure about. How can rabbinic discussions inform our attitudes? This series is part of an ongoing project called Talmud from the Balcony, open to all, from novice to advanced. I look forward to thinking about this critical topic with you. Visit shalomhartman.org slash talmudbalcony to learn more. See you there. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. Now we're recording on Thursday, November 4th, 2021. My colleagues and I at Hartman have been working for a long time on the twin challenges that North American Jews face with respect to Israel. The first, a challenge of distancing from Israel, that Israel is less relevant and oftentimes less comprehensible to a growing number of us. And second, the challenge of conflict about Israel, that Israel is a polarizing and divisive force among a growing number of North American Jews. These two problems ironically undermine each other, or rather the solution to one is not necessarily the solution to the other, because you need to be passionate about something to want to fight about it. And my guess is that fights about Israel are one of the contributing factors to why a lot of Jews want to have little to do with the state of Israel. So is Israel meant to be something that we care about so much that we want to go to war with our fellow Jews about it? That's the weird and dark question that I think vexes a lot of us. Since the war in Israel in May, I've also been thinking a lot about the question of what we as Jews owe each other in a moment of crisis. In religious terms, this is oftentimes referred to as Ahavat Yisrael, the obligation, the commandment that Jews are meant to love one another, which is usually understood as a riff on Leviticus 19, the obligation that we love our fellow as ourselves, which then gets mapped onto a religious obligation, usually though as a form of criticism of who's doing it wrong on Jews who don't stand up for one another in a time of vulnerability. I've never actually loved the use of the terminology of Ahava Israel. I'm not persuaded that it's our job as human beings to interrogate and decide what's in someone else's heart. And I'm also really skeptical about how Jews can criticize, oftentimes violently, other Jews for not loving Jews enough or the right way, which seems kind of ironic. But the term sticks around, Ahava Yisrael, because when a people thinks of itself as a people, as a tribe or as a family, those metaphors come loaded with affective sensibilities and with real questions about 
about what it means to be loyal. Both what are we supposed to feel for each other across the divides and how are those feelings supposed to turn into obligations, actions, responsibilities. This question came to the fore in the midst of the May War when, among other acts of protests in the Jewish community, and we'll try to put this in a larger context today, a group of 90 or so rabbinical students from different liberal seminaries penned a group letter castigating Israel for its actions, naming Israel as practicing apartheid, and using the framework of their Jewishness to stand in protest to Israel and its actions. This came under criticism widely from other people in the Jewish community, including three of the seminary heads who publicly criticized their students for not exhibiting sufficient Ahava Israel. And that story is back this week in the news in the form of a New York Times Magazine story by Mark Tracy, which profiles some of these students and argues that the letter portends or maybe reflects a breaking point in American Zionism. To unpack this moment, to understand where we are in history, where is a community we might be headed, I'm talking today to one of the world's experts in intra-Jewish conflict, a role we can all agree is an enviable one. And let's also acknowledge a growth industry. It's a good time for that business. Dove Waxman is the director of the YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies at UCLA, where he's also a professor of political science and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair of Israel Studies and the author of a really great 2019 book, Trouble in the Tribe, the American Jewish conflict over Israel. Dove, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dove, one of the things that's core to the thesis of your book is that in spite of the fact that there is a long history of intra-Jewish conflict, a long history of Jewish sectarianism, not just in pre-modern periods, but even about the state of Zionism over the past hundred years, the state of Israel over the past 70, you argue that there is a sea change underway uh, relatively recently, let's say the last decade, last 20 years, and maybe even the last 24 months. So I would love for you to make that case. What actually is different about the more recent time in the American Jewish community about Israel versus earlier iterations of this? And what do you think has changed? Well, I think the shift that I describe in my book is a shift that's been decades in the making. So I trace the shift as far back as the early 1980s in the first Lebanon war and the first intifada. So I don't think this is a shift that's just been caused by recent events, just occurred overnight. In fact, I'm critical of those who tend to attribute this just to kind of the latest escalation in violence between Israel and the Palestinians or features of American politics. I think it's been taking place for some time. But I argue that it's with a kind of cumulative development that has really, over the last decades, over the last decade in particular, become increasingly apparent. So the, the shift, as I describe it, is one from really largely uncritical, unequivocal, unconditional support for Israel, which characterized, broadly speaking, American Jewish attitudes toward Israel for about two decades or so, even less, from really the aftermath of the Six-Day War through till the late 1970s. So a relatively short period of time, but a period of time that is held up as the, the kind of norm of how American Jews should relate to Israel at this time with very strong pro-Israel consensus. And what I describe is a process taking place since then whereby increasingly dissent of this consensus, criticism of Israel has gradually become increasingly more mainstream, increasingly more acceptable. The taboo against public criticism of Israel has gradually been undermined. And so there's been this shift from unconditional support for Israel, Israel right or wrong, to what I would call critical engagement not disengagement from Israel, as many people have feared, but a shift in terms of how American Jews support Israel, and that increasingly 
They support Israel, at least in some cases, by criticizing Israel, by protesting its policies. And so it's really a shift in the nature of American Jewish support for Israel that's taken place. But I think politically, this shift has become important and manifested over the last dozen years or so with the rise of groups like J Street, for example, which have really... They didn't create this shift. In a sense, politically, they've taken advantage of this to now bring this into the halls of Congress. So you allude to what you call the mainstreaming of criticism of Israel. And certainly a piece of this is the total demise of the old mythology of we don't air our dirty laundry in public. We don't litigate our conflicts in public as American Jews. I want to get into that a little bit later about how much about this is about a shift in American Jewish identity has nothing to do with Israel. But you'd have to add that it's not just the mainstreaming of criticism. It's also the radicalization of the nature of that criticism, right? I mean, it's not, wow, I disagree with this country's policy. Something else is taking place here about what the state of that criticism are and what it's allowed to include in its criticism. Absolutely. I think that's that's absolutely correct. It's not just that the criticism has become more widespread, but the debate itself has become increasingly polarized. Those on the edges of this debate are the loudest voices, those on the far left and on the right. In the past, the kind of mainstream consensus was the one that was most often represented by Jewish organizations and in public debate. That shifted. And I think that we're seeing that not just in terms of the American Jewish conversation about Israel, but in our public debates in general in the United States, that it's the extremes that are gaining the most attention that are often shaping the terms of the debate. So not only is it more polarized than it's been in the past, but the issues have expanded. So in the past, there was criticism more narrowly focused on Israel's policies towards the Palestinians. Those on the left were calling, for example, in, in decades past for Israel to negotiate with the PLO, right? To allow for the establishment of a Palestinian state. Now the debate isn't over whether there should be a Palestinian state, but whether there should be a Jewish state. In other words, it's expanded now, not just to focus on Israel's policies towards the Palestinians, but really over Zionism itself. Right. And the equivalent activity, of course, happening on the right, which is in a dialectical relationship to the further the left goes in terms of its extremes, the more the expressions of loyalty towards the state of Israel shift from broad support for the state of Israel and its policies to very pointed insistence on support for those policies as the indicator of what it really means to be a Zionist. So let me ask you, maybe this is a facile question, but I'm genuinely curious to try to figure it out. If there was, for, for a period of time, a stronger voice of the center, which is, yeah, I support Israel, I don't have to agree with all of its policies, and I think it's probably descriptively true that the majority of American Jews, based on almost any study, would probably identify with that position. Why is it the case that the strongest and loudest voices in our community are emerging on the polls and the extremes? What is holding back a consensus position from actually finding its voice in the American Jewish public square? Well, I think that voice is still expressed by many kind of establishment Jewish organizations. But I think in the past, the voice of the Jewish establishment, if you like, dominated the conversation and managed to actually, to a large extent, exclude or silence those voices on the margins. So I think in the past, there were these perspectives, but they were rarely heard from because they didn't have a megaphone and they didn't have institutional support or power behind them. Now we've seen the kind of traditional gatekeepers of the Jewish conversation about Israel, the mainstream institutions, losing that power 
losing the ability to dominate the conversation or to monopolize it. And those on the wings, on the edges, on the poles, be they on the right, on the left, gaining a megaphone. I mean, the internet being the best example of this, that nowadays it's very easy to voice your criticisms and to find support and to appear much more populous and popular than you actually are. So I think that has facilitated groups on the left and right, and it's actually weakened groups in the center. And another factor, I think, in terms of why some of the kind of pro-Israel consensus in the center isn't expressed as much or as forcefully is I think there's a kind of crisis of confidence almost in that position. Because it's being challenged from both sides, there is less confidence in expressing the consensus as it still exists. I think there's a wariness about even engaging in this debate because it's become so toxic. And so many people who kind of might be inclined to agree with some points with those on the left and some points with those on the right and really to be in the centre just are turned off by the whole debate altogether, feel that their position isn't reflected and it's not really possible to get that across. So I think there's both a kind of amplification of these voices on the margins, which can give a misleading impression about where American Jewish opinion really is, but also a declining willingness of those in the center to really forcefully express themselves in this debate. I will tell you on a personal level, I struggle on that all the time. If I write something, whether I publish it or put it on Facebook or Twitter, I know who's going to criticize me for it. And trying to hold some measure of a position that I come out honestly which has sometimes a criticism of the right and sometimes a criticism of the left, it's just a vulnerable spot to be in, like everybody is. And so therefore, there's a lot of disincentives to actually participate in the discourse in that kind of way. And that winds up amplifying those who feel risk-free in terms of the position that they're taking because the various purity that's available to them. Absolutely. I feel the same sometimes. I think, you know, if you're trying to articulate a more nuanced position in these public debates, it's very difficult. It often feels like a very lonely position to be in, despite the fact that if you look at the survey data and you look at opinion polls, you actually probably represent the plurality of views on these debates. But the criticism that you'll inevitably hear from is the critics from the left and the right who will attack you on either side. And so, you know, many people just choose the path of least resistance, which is basically disengagement or silence. Let's take the particular example that's this news story. Then you're quoted in the story in the Times Magazine um, about rabbinical students. It is, on one hand, kind of a big deal. It's a pretty significant percentage of the rabbinical student population. And it's a big deal, I suppose, because as opposed to 90 random young Jews, you're talking about people who have thrown their lot in, you know, to set out their careers working for and on behalf of the Jewish people. So first, let's take it as a data point. Do you see it more on the side of like, well, this affirms where we've been headed for a long time? Or do you see it having actually moved the football in some significant way down the field on top of those trends? I think in many respects, it does reflect this longer-term trend. And in some ways, there's nothing new about rabbis and rabbinical students and those most engaged in the Jewish community expressing this kind of criticism. I mean, that's been happening for decades. Uh, so in some ways, it's misleading because actually what I think is more novel isn't those who are most Jewishly engaged, sometimes expressing criticism of Israel, but this more widespread phenomenon of those who aren't really that engaged doing so. But I think there were some novel elements in this particular protest letter. One being the ways in which it touched on some of the most 
taboo topics like questioning American military aid to Israel. That was something that I think Jewish critics of Israeli policies in the past weren't willing to go that far, weren't willing to call into question the provision of American support for Israel. And I think one of the things that shifted in this debate is that it's no longer just focused on Israeli policy towards the Palestinians, as it was in criticizing Israel's policy and calling for shifts in Israeli government policy, but is increasingly focused on US policy toward Israel. And that's something that that earlier generation of Jewish critics didn't focus on as much. I think another thing that's interesting and was striking in the letter, you mentioned it, was the reference to apartheid. So again, showing that the terms of the debate are shifting now. Criticisms that would have once been inconceivable and taboo, you know, any reference to apartheid is now part of this debate, is now a subject of open debate. The allusion to racial violence in the letter, which is also, I think, significance in, in showing how there's this kind of attempt to map on some of the racial politics in the United States to the Israel-Palestine conflict. I think that's also significant. And I think on top of all of that, the simple willingness of so many rabbinical students to sign a public letter and thereby risk their own livelihoods. I mean, you know, they did so knowing that this could jeopardize them. I mean, whatever you think of this letter, I think there's moral courage in taking that position. And I think that, again, reflects a more assertive attitude toward the Jewish establishment, if you like, a willingness to very publicly take on and express this kind of dissent in a way that I think an earlier generation, I mean, yes, it happened, but often they suffered quite serious consequences. And I think it'll be interesting to see what consequences, if any, those letter writers sign. Maybe some of them might, but I think the fact that they're doing this, again, shows that there's a broader shift taking place that positions that once could not be publicly articulated or people would have been wary about doing so are now being done and is now happening and it's happening with great frequency. I mean, it happens almost every time there's an escalation of violence between Israel and the Palestinians. And, and it, it remains to be seen whether there actually may be quite significant professional consequences for some of the folks involved. There already were, I think, 12 internships that either got canceled for rabbinical students or were threatened to be canceled. And it is noticeable, many people kind of observe this who are in this field, that the majority, I believe, of the students who signed the letter were in their first couple of years of rabbinical school. And that's noticeable of like how strategic people are. And maybe you anticipate, okay, within three to five years when they're going to get jobs, the Jewish community will be there, or maybe they're going to be significant repercussions. There was a lot that you said there, Dove, that I want to unpack, but I want to take on the term that you used, which is moral courage. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Because it's not a neutral term, right? Moral courage, I suppose it could be neutral in the sense of taking a moral stance, knowing that it comes with risks attached to it, or a stance on a moral issue. But there are those who would argue, myself included, that the positions themselves, some of the positions themselves were immoral. <laughs> And therefore, to take those positions is not inherently morally courageous. It might be countercultural. It might be counter-normative. But in and of itself, it's not necessarily a moral position. So how do you use that term? And what's your reference? Yeah, so are you, I was using it in the first sense, in the sense that I think taking a public stand on something on the basis of your belief that it is ethically necessary to do that and risk personal consequences in doing so, mm-hmm. I think is the position of moral courage. And that acknowledges that there are individuals and groups that do that for positions I don't agree with. I mean, I didn't agree with everything that was in that letter. But I think any time an individual or group takes a moral stance, knowing full well that there may be consequences to pay, I think that should be understood as moral courage, even if we may disagree with the substance of that stance. One of the things that's hard to 
parse out uh, in a moment like this is that I think to me a little bit of what was unique about this is the speaking in the language of Jewish tradition and marshalling the authority of the rabbinic tradition and then identity of somebody as a rabbi and saying, I'm not merely taking this position because it's the conclusions I've drawn politically, it's because this is what I'm sent to do, right? There's a sense of mission. This is what I'm sent to do as a Jew. So in comparing that population to the overwhelming majority of American rabbis, it is unusual and different. On the other hand, there was so much of this language, especially around apartheid and the racialization of the conflict and American military aid, that is like, it's just the straight talking points out of the progressive camp of American politics. And in that sense, it's not a, it's countercultural perhaps in the rabbinic world, but it was totally uh, kind of weirdly flat as just an expression of progressive politics. So that's kind of a weird thing, right? That in the context of rabbinical students, it's maybe a historically unusual position to make, but it also felt like weirdly lockstep with like a platform of progressive politics. So how much is this actually American Jews being countercultural to their Jewishness is how much of it is just essentially embrace of a progressive ethos on the Jewish left? That's a, that's a good question, a tricky one to answer. I, I think certainly it does reflect many of the positions regarding Israel and Palestine that have been now widely accepted on the left. But I think that there is an attempt now of young Jews in particular to create a real Jewish left, to try to meld these two things together. So on the one hand, it's very much of the moment in so far as it's reflecting what are now the consensus positions on the left. And this is true not just with Israel, Palestine, but on many issues, whether it's immigration, racial justice in the United States. So there is a broader Jewish left emerging, but unlike in the past where these were Jews who were leftists, right? Or Jews, I mean, leftists who happened to be Jewish, I should say, right? Mm -hmm. And so they expressed positions on the left, but not in a, any Jewish vernacular and didn't try to present it as based upon, as grounded in Jewish texts. The shift today, and I think it is important, is an attempt to both be simultaneously leftist and Jewish leftists and really to bring their Jewishness, Jewish values, Jewish identities and rituals to these left-wing positions. So they're not just leftists who happen to be Jewish. And that effort, it's not, I don't think, unprecedented, but I think we haven't seen really anything quite like that, this kind of much more confident, growing movement, and particularly led by young people who are really committed to both these worlds committed to the world on the left and not just with regards to Israel-Palestine but as a broader worldview and committed to the Jewishness and really are trying to forge a symbiosis or a synthesis between these two worlds which have grown increasingly apart over the last few decades in many ways, right? So I think when we look at this letter from the rabbinical students, one of the things going back to what's distinctive about it is it comes in part of a much broader shift that's taking place of this rise uh, of a kind of Jewish left and challenging Jewish institutions, not just on Israel-Palestine, but on other issues and seeing Israel-Palestine as one part of a broader challenge. Yeah. You know, so then it's not just doves criticizing uh, American Jewish doves, they're American Jewish leftists criticizing the Israeli policy, criticizing the American Jewish community for its kind of being in lockstep with those policies. But I think it is part of a broader ideological challenge, if you like, which we're seeing in American politics as well. 
Right. Uh, that I totally agree with. I think you're right to notice and to note the larger political shift, what this represents in terms of a Jewish left. I guess I'm a little bit more cynical than you on this particular point, because a real synthesis, a real hybriding of Jewish values and the values of the left should create a lot more discomfort. That's the whole point of a hybrid, of a synthesis. But when actually on all of the issues themselves, they are basically just pulled off of the pages of the progressive talking points, then you're not actually allowing the Jewish values to create any provocation. They just have the effect of kind of, oh, they're like pull quotes. I'm going to take this pull quote because it mirrors this. And I sense that that's where the resistance from many of the teachers of these students came from. Wait a second. On a political level, you could take all of these positions about American aid, even the language of apartheid, which is used by some Israelis, right? Ehud Barak even said, we're headed towards apartheid. You could use that language. But Ehud Barak also, and Israelis who live in Israel, are anxious about their relatives under rocket attack. <laughs> and the reason they don't say it is because if you say that, if you talk about empathy for Israeli civilians, you lose your standing with the left. And that's where it kind of loses its hybrid dimension of being Jewish values in relationship to progressive values. Yeah, I think that's a fair critique. I mean, I, I, I think on the one hand, the tendency to kind of mine a tradition for how it can support your positions is not unique to those mm -hmm. students. I mean, I think on all sides of this debate, there is a kind of fast and loose approach to invoking Jewish values and concepts and historical episodes to support your points. I think that's true among Jews, as it's true among Muslims, as it's true among Christians. That's how people engage in many ways with these traditions, is that they find in them what they want to find, essentially. Yeah. But I think you're right that it is unfortunately the case that in offering critiques of Israeli policy or of Israel as a state, they're often not couched in any kind of recognition of or an acknowledgement that Israelis also are suffering here. That I've often said, you know, you have to start out with a basic sense of compassion for both peoples who have and are enduring this conflict and an understanding that when it comes to Jews in Israel, this is a deeply traumatized population, traumatized by as Jews themselves are, but particularly in Israel from what they live. So I think that is true. Unfortunately, in public debate nowadays, there is a tendency to not want to express even the slightest bit of recognition for the other side's conditions or concerns. There's this kind of, mm -hmm. you have to take standing with the victim and identification that there's only one side that can be a victim. And that creates this kind of, you know, victimhood Olympics where different sides are competing. Who can claim the mantle of victimhood? Whereas recognizing that there is no monopoly on victimhood. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, when it comes to discussions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the debate between right and left, each side wants to monopolize the status of victimhood. Right. And if you are yourself in a polarized political context, it serves your interest to treat the object of your politics as polarized as well. Makes things really easy, maps out your allies really easily, shows the stakes of the moral difference between those you disagree with. Let's come back to race for a second, because um, obviously Americans are obsessed with race, always have been for a long time. Certainly the American public discourse has been transformed around race over the past two years, and it's all over these criticisms that have emerged about Israel in the past year, uh, the racialization of the conflict, the portrayal, and it's it's kind of like on a, the Talmudic term is a kalva homer, right? If I already care about race so much here, and I'm committed to being on the side of racial justice, should I not also care about it there? And should I not care about it more? Like it's a Jewish state, therefore we should be on the side of justice. I guess there's two ways to think about what's going on here. The critics will say, you are mapping an American story onto Israel. 
right? It's basically irrelevant. And therefore, all you've done basically is you as an American Jew have decided that Israel is not actually about Israelis and Palestinians, it's about you. On the other hand, you mentioned in your book, early on in your book, that American Jews are participants in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's not just by being outsiders, it's because American Jews actually do have levers through politics, through philanthropy and otherwise. So when you read this story of racialization, I guess it's kind of like, which is it? Is this an American Jewish projection of this story and maybe a necessary tool to be able to make change? Or do you think something else is going on here? Well, first I would say that when it comes to engaging in foreign affairs, wherever we are, it's always a projection of our own domestic sensibilities and concerns. I don't think this is only true for American Jews and their attitudes towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think when we look at other parts of the world, other communities that we're not familiar, the way in which we try to make sense of that is by projecting our own debates, our own divisions, our own concerns onto that. So I think that's always the case. I think when it comes to Israel and the conflict, American Jews have always projected things onto Israel. I mean, they've always engaged with a kind of symbolic, metaphorical Israel and not the actual country. Um, and their engagement and their views toward about Israel and about its conflict with the Palestinians have always been filtered through a kind of domestic context. Nowadays, given the Black Lives Matter movement and the racial justice movement and concerns about systemic racism, that's now the lens through which some American Jews are looking at Israel. In the past, in in the 1970s, for example, it was in the wake of the Vietnam War, concerns about war and militarism and pacifism. Um, and so Israel was seen in, in that context or in a colonial or as an anti-colonial context. So I don't think there's anything really novel in our tendency to project onto other countries, onto other issues, because that's really psychologically how we reason. We reason by analogy. There's shortcuts to thinking we don't really have the time or the inclination necessarily to really immerse ourselves in the specificities of any particular situation. So we just kind of say, this is like that, and I know this, so this must be similar to that, and this will therefore tell me what to think or feel about this other issue. And I think that it's clear when it comes to Israel, because we know the situation in Israel doesn't quite look like that. But I'm sure other issues, other countries that I do that about, and I'm not aware that it doesn't actually mirror reality. But specifically when it comes to the issue of applying the kind of racial lens, yeah, I do think that is a shift that's taken place. I think it's partly been the result of a kind of campaign or activism by Palestinians in the United States, Palestinian Americans, Arab Americans, who over the last number of years have really established alliances with black Americans and tried to forge this coalition. It's happened on college campuses and it's happened in municipal politics and local politics. And so politically speaking, in trying to find allies in the United States, it makes sense for them to obviously emphasize and try to establish these commonalities. Uh, so I think as a kind of activist strategy, it makes a lot of sense because you're trying to find allies just as Jews have tried to do in years past as well and to kind of make connections between, you know, well, you're seeking this, we're seeking the same thing, or you're seeking independence, so are we. I think when it comes to American Jews themselves doing this, I think on the one hand, yes, it's easy to criticize because there are obvious differences. And obviously, Ferguson and Gaza are not the same. And we can always point out the differences. But I think there 
that doesn't really take seriously what the critique is. The critique isn't simply saying that the racial divide in the United States is exactly the same as the Israeli-Palestinian divide, but in terms of how groups of people can be dehumanized, how domination and power can operate, how discourse can shape who is seen as a threat and who isn't seen as a threat, how some lives can be cheaper than other lives, those kind of similarities. I mean, so in, in talking about race isn't necessarily strictly to say Palestinians are black and Israeli Jews are white. No, but that how does systems of oppression operate, mm -hmm. right? How do groups become stigmatized and seen as threatening? And that then in turn allows for a kind of security discourse toward them. So I think it's easy to dismiss and say they're obvious and there are, there are differences, but I also think it doesn't really seriously engage with the underlying critique. Yeah, it reminds me of one of my favorite all-time Onion headlines, which is professor sees similarity between things, comma, other things. <laughs> right. And so like, I think what you're pushing towards, and I'll internalize this and maybe translate for our audience to the question of those who disagree with those comparisons, how do you respond to them? There is something equally trivial, if you think that the comparisons are trivial, if you think the comparisons are wrong, there's something equally trivial to saying they're absurd and there's nothing worth engaging in, as opposed to acknowledging, of course, people are going to use the prism of their own understanding to figure out what's going on in one other place. And that requires a good amount of humility. So you don't wind up actually ironically being a colonialist <laughs> through your own frame of reference to something else. On the other hand, it can't be used as a kind of cheap Hasbara tool to say, therefore, the condition that the Palestinians are experiencing is totally fine. You know, the place where I think I have the most empathy for really vociferous critics of Israel is what emerges for me as the kind of sum total of this really big trifecta, resisting military aid, characterization of Israel as apartheid, the racialization of the conflict. A lot of it adds up to me to a kind of helplessness. I, I have strong opinions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't think that the present status quo is sustainable. It's not going to go away by itself. And I, as an American Jew far away, feel I have no leverage and I have no levers. So what am I left to do? Either protest really loud, scream out loud, this is not in my name, it doesn't reflect my values, or maybe get attracted to the one lever that currently exists in political behavior, which is participating in a boycott movement that's led by, by Palestinians. So it's not that I don't support those positions, but what I'm empathetic to is the helplessness. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that helplessness, because it's going to pertain to a huge amount of American Jews who will not sign up with BDS, but also feel a sense of, how am I supposed to act on this? What am I supposed to do in the world? And not just, I believe in a two-state solution, but I really wish I was able to do something to effectuate change for Israelis and Palestinians. Yeah, I think you're right. There is this sense of helplessness and kind of despair. And I think it's been building really um, since the end of the Oslo peace process. I mean, you know, over the years, the prospects for peace have dwindled. Belief in a peace process as being able to achieve a reasonable and a fair or stable solution to the conflict has gradually disappeared. And so Jews in the United States, elsewhere, and in Israel themselves are seeing this and are experiencing this and are reacting to it in different ways. I think on the one hand, for some, it's leading to a kind of 
just disengagement. There's nothing we can do. This is a hopeless situation. It's too painful. It's too depressing. Therefore, I want to focus on other issues. And so I think we're seeing Jewish Americans become increasingly active on other issues because Israel-Palestine feels so hopeless. And so they're focusing their energies elsewhere. We're also seeing it, though, on those who are still engaged on trying to look for some miraculous salvation to some sort of deus ex machina that will change things. For some, it might be the belief that enough international pressure on Israel through, say, BDS will miraculously change the situation. And I think in many ways, support for the BDS movement is a bit like believing in a miracle cure. It's not based upon very much in reasoned logic in terms of how might this actually affect change, but some sort of wishful thinking, basically. And then it's like an article of faith that, well, this is going to work, despite all the evidence that suggests otherwise. And for others, if they're not willing to go as far as embracing BDS, now it's becoming about, well, if only we could get the United States government to push Israel, or if only we could get it to place restrictions on American military aid to Israel, that will make a difference. And I also think that grossly overstates the ability of the United States to influence the situation. So there is this frustration. There is this sense of not really being able to do anything. And I think what's making it worse for many Jews is that this isn't just a situation, this helplessness isn't just about trying to ameliorate a situation thousands of miles away that they're worried about and upset about because it's affecting the lives of Israelis and Palestinians. But I think for many, there's a recognition that this is actually affecting American Jews themselves. You know, this isn't just a conflict over there that is only that American Jews are participants in, but really it doesn't affect their well-being and their interests. We're seeing in many ways there is a spillover of this conflict. It's been clear in Europe for some time that it's affected European Jews and the security and their safety, and it's happening in the United States as well. So that's making this sense of impotence and despair even worse because it's not just... It was bad enough when it was Israelis and Palestinians who were bearing the consequences of the continuation of the conflict. But now American Jews in, you know, are in a much less serious way, of course. I mean, I'm not saying it's anything remotely the same scale, but they are experiencing blowback from this conflict, if you like. They are experiencing a spillover, and yet they're helpless to do much about it. And I think that adds to this sense of anxiety that is really pervasive in the Jewish community today. You know, it makes me wonder, and this is just a speculative thought, but, you know, something about Zionism was about the secularization of the Jewish people's understanding of itself and its capacity to change history and to transform history and to stop being kind of passive participants in our political realities. And the miracle of Zionism is that it succeeds, right? It really does transform the Jewish condition politically. There's something ironic about the anti-Zionist position, which is rooted in the self-confidence of Zionism. <laughs> if we, we ourselves are the ones that could actually fix this destiny, we could do it ourselves, and it's gonna require the, it, it means that we're gonna take on these various political levers. There's something that's almost like unthinkable. Jewish participation in BDS as a means of changing Israel is somewhat unthinkable if it weren't for Zionism. I think it's true. And I think that was one of the great contributions of Zionism was that it empowered Jews. It gave Jews a sense that they could be masters of their own fate and not at the mercy of others. Yeah. And it was that sense of empowerment. And I think, strangely enough, in recent decades, and really beginning with shifts in Israel, Zionism has gone from a movement of kind of Jewish empowerment and a message of empowerment. You know, Jews can change their fates and be accepted into the world 
world to the opposite message and actually a sense of helplessness and futility that Israel is the victim, Israel is the new Jew in the world, that there will always be anti-Semitism. It is a permanent feature of Jewish-Christian relations. I mean, this is the conventional yeah. view, the mainstream view about anti-Semitism. It's always there, waiting to arise. The Israel's existence has made no difference to that, really, that the world is always against Israel. I mean, that that understanding of Zionism, when we've heard it expressed, I think, most repeatedly by former Prime Minister Netanyahu, whose Zionism wasn't about empowerment in many ways. It was, it was actually a message of kind of eternal victimhood. Yeah. Yeah. And it's particularly young people who were turned off by that, just as it was young people who were gravitated towards Zionism. Because, you know, you, uh, young people are not looking for an ideology of despair. Uh, they want something that will give them a sense of being able to be active agents in the world and to change the world that they're living in. And if the message is, well, you can't do that, then I think they're going to turn off that ideology. And the message and Zionism has become, at least in the ways in which it's typically expressed, in many ways, is not this assertion of Jewish agency, but actually the opposite. And I think that's part of kind of a tragedy that exactly that impulse that was so powerful in the rise of Zionism has now actually declined, I think, from within Zionism itself. The only only Zionists today who really do express that are the Jewish settlers, who mm. are those who do believe that they can change Israel's fate and that ultimately these things will shift. But if you're not in that movement, for many others who would count themselves as Zionists, there is a kind of feeling that almost that Israel and Jews are at just the mercy of these wider forces. Last question for you, Dove. Whenever you see this kind of um, growth and pronounced criticism of Israel in public, any shifting of the goalposts, right, as this becomes more intense, there's going to be a response. There's going to be a backlash. There are going to be consequences, punitive and otherwise. I'm curious, just give us a couple sentences, what you think those are going to be? And if you could write the script, what do you think they should be? So I think as the debate is shifting now to the question of Israel itself, Israel's existence as a Jewish state, to the legitimacy of Zionism, and so the critique has now gone beyond the occupation and Israel's treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank, but to the very nature of Zionism, and therefore what the backlash is, is now trying to impose that as the red line. So it's no longer, you know, you're going to be cast out if you support a two-state solution, was the case for Brewer decades ago. Now the red line is your view on Israel very legitimacy or the existence of Israel or political Zionism and Israel as is a Jewish state. And so I think that has become the new divine line. That's in part why we're seeing this concerted effort to define anti-Zionism as anti-Semitic. The more Zionism is being challenged outside the Jewish community, but also inside the Jewish community, the stronger is the attempt to kind of basically silence that challenge by describing it as anti-Semitic. I think that's very problematic for a whole host of reasons. I think we need to accept the fact that there was, in decades past, a debate about Zionism within the Jewish community before Israel was established. There were many non-Zionists, including august institutions like the AJC, and were once non-Zionist or even anti-Zionist organizations. So I think the only way the Jewish community in the United States and elsewhere can manage this debate is by returning to that tradition of ideological pluralism and by not insisting that there must be support. Well, I think support and concern and compassion for Jews in Israel is absolutely essential. And I think if you aren't willing to express that kind of Ahavat Yisrael, right, and a commitment to, there should be Jewish solidarity Absolutely. But that doesn't necessarily, and that shouldn't necessarily have to mean particular positions on the nature of the Israeli state or on the disposition, the future political disposition of Israel-Palestine. I think we have to 
accept the fact that the ideological consensus around Zionism that emerged after the Holocaust and that reached its apogee in the decade after 1967, that's dissolving. And trying to maintain it by punishing those who are dissenting from it, I think is only going to drive those people out of the organized Jewish community and, and turn off many others. So I think in that respect, we have the cultural capital to have a kind of ideological and political pluralism because that's been the norm in Jewish history. And we just have to remember that that is the norm, not this very brief period where we all, for a brief moment in time, largely or at least seem to agree with each other. Thanks all for listening to our show this week and, and special thanks to my guest, Professor Dove Waxman. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Pat Burke at Silver Sound NYC with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhevet Schwartz and music provided by So Called. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening. Thank you.